0: This afternoon to be talking to David McCourt live in Los Angeles. I'm in the Algarve in Portugal and uh, David is, uh, if you don't don't know David, David's uh, quite a well-known celebrity entrepreneur, Irish American, uh, done the most amazing things, started as uh, an entrepreneur when he was in his early 20s uh, founding his first company McCourt Cable Systems, operating as a designer and builder of cable networks. It grew to be the largest privately owned designer and builder of cable systems in the US. But that then he went into um, the job of taking on the big old bell telephone monopolies and he did, te- um, he did telephone and cable work for customers, dramatically improving customer service, installation time and so forth. He also has done some quite interesting things in strange parts of the world, such as the Caribbean island of Granada, and also uh, in Mexico and various other places as well. David, it's a great it's a great pleasure to be talking to you this afternoon. How are you? Oh Richard, the
1: pleasure the pleasure's mine. The pleasure's mine.
0: Okay, great. Well we haven't got a lot of time David, so can I press on with the, the questions? Because I think anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur or anyone in business generally, or indeed anyone who wants to be a social revolutionary can benefit from, um, from your wisdom. Why did you become an entrepreneur at such a young age? Very unusual thing to do. And, and then what? how did you decide to go into the slightly unlikely, to me, slightly unlikely, business of designing and building cable networks, which is a real, a real heavy duty sort of, um, yeah, a real world sort of stuff. So, why did you become yeah. an entrepreneur? What was what was behind that?
1: Well, you, you, you know, when I started, you know, we didn't really use the word entrepreneur as much as it's used today, Richard. It was, um, you know, more self-preservation. I wanted to be a cop, and, and that didn't work out. And um, most, you know, Irish-Americans that were first generation, they either became cops or contractors. And... And, and I wanted to be a cop, and I was working for a, a politician at the time, a guy named Tip O'Neill, and while I was in his office, I was reading an article about how cable TV was not going to come to the urban environment because it was too expensive. And I said, that that doesn't seem right. There must be a way to make it cheaper. And I, I became a cable TV contractor, a small one, then got to be a bigger one, then a bigger one, and then I invented a way of building cable systems that sort of revolutionized the way they were they were built um i basically invented a way to make the conduit with the cable already inside it and put it in big big spools um and i talk about this in the book but anyway to make a long story short i i i then decided to build uh what effectively became the first competitive phone company in america and that was you know that that richard was really based on an observation i made where I was I was in someone's office in a bank and, and uh, I was just having lunch with a buddy of mine and I saw all these people on computers. And I was like, you know, I, I always thought of a bank as people on the phone all the time. And I, I realized that, that the phone system was moving, was, 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 was more computers were talking to computers than people were talking to people. And I said to myself, geez, it doesn't seem right that they built the phone system 100 years ago for voice and now it's being used for data. It must not be, must not be efficient. There must be a, more, a better way to do that. So I built a, a system designed to move data and I was able to ride voice on it virtually free. So it sounds complicated, but it didn't sound complicated to a 20-something-year-old at the time anyway. Uh,
0: in other words, you got into the, the, the cable business almost by accident via um, Tip O'Neill's office. And then you got into the telephone and cable business because you just saw an opportunity and thought, why not, why not do it? So, is that, is that uh, pretty accurate or not?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Exactly right. And, um, and that's, how, that's how many things in life happen. I, I guess down deep, you know, you have to have a dream. There has to be a combination of your dream and your destiny and luck. So yep. You sort of have to have those, all those things together to make it work, and and.
0: Well, one of the I other had... things that you surely need is is money, and uh, how did you get the backing as a sort of you know young unproven ex politician, ex probation officer, uh, assistant? <laughs> how did you get the financial wherewithal to take on the old bell? Telephone monopolies, which, as you say, have been going for a hundred years, everyone you know assumed that they were a permanent fixture on the map of corporate America.
1: Well, this huh? is where luck comes in because when I was a contractor, um, my biggest customer didn't didn't pay me, and I had to lay off all my employees. So it was just me and one other guy named Jim Finnegan. We were just left and everything but my pickup truck and and, and my partner Jim everything else was gone and in construction, you know, you make money and then you spend that money you made uh, uh, waiting to get another job. Then you make money, then you spend that money to try to get another job. But when I laid everybody off and I had no money, I went, I went after the customer that hadn't paid me and I went after him with the vengeance. And when he paid me, all of a sudden I had money, but no employees to pay. So for, for once in my life, I had, you know, I had a little bit of cash, and I didn't have any any payables, because I had shut everything down.
0: So... It's a fascinating story, by the way I must tell my listeners that the book is called Total Rethink, and it really is a fascinating story, it's a unique book, it's beautifully presented, there are revolutionary covers in the book, sent from Fidel Castro, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a combination of uh, very, very idiosyncratic um, autobiography really with a great deal of business advice and business wisdom and i think it's a, a it's a unique book i can tell this book is not the book that has been ghosted you can tell it's very authentic to one particular individual and also you can tell it hasn't been poured over as many books are now by copy editors and professional publishers who say you can't say that you shouldn't say that you know etc 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 so I, so i think it's a very very refreshing book, and you tell the great story about how you took on the the person who hadn't paid you, and it's a bit hazy since I, I read the book. But you you actually threatened to dig up part of the system that you created. Is that is that right? Am I remembering like, that Well,
1: what, what what I what I did was I was I was in a I was in a bar, um, not unusual for an Irishman, right? So right. I was in a bar and... Uh, talking to a friend of mine, and he just said, look, you, you've just got to take matters into your own hands. You, you can't sit here and bitch about it. So um, I called up the, the guy that owed me the money, and I said, look, I don't care if you pay me anymore. I'm going to take my work back. And um, I threatened to dig up his, his system. Um, and we, we, we dug up a couple feet of it just to prove we were serious. And um, it started, of course, a huge shitstorm. And that brought him to the table. And that was on a, on a Tuesday, I think. And by Thursday, he had paid me, paid me everything he owed me. And it was, it, you know, it was, it was the lucky stroke of my life. Because with that, I built the first competitive phone company in America, which was very small. I mean, keep in mind... It sounds big, but my very first customer was two buildings, the Bank of Boston, across the street from each other. Mm. So my very first, the, the, the very first thing I did was, you know, put a cable sixty feet across the street from one Bank of Boston building to another, um, and then they paid me. Then I connected another building, and then another building, and then another building. But my second customer, which was the Polaroid Cor- Corporation, the people who made the the instant instant photograph, and I connected their buildings. Um Digital equipment was my third customer, so I, I, I you know, I started with one customer in one building or two buildings rather, and then worked my way up. and it was you know, looking back on it, it was very revolutionary, but at the time, it just seemed like a young man you know trying to find his way in the world. Yes, but, my, but there was a,
0: there was a real logic to it, as you said, the fact that that people were trying to use a, a system designed for telephone when data was being shoved down, the, the idea that it might actually be better to blow up the whole thing and have a rethink, as you'd as, as you describe it. It seems very obvious in, in retrospect, and it seems obvious that if it was going to work at all, it would work on a huge scale, or could work on a huge scale. And one of the lessons that I take away from your book is that many people do not go to the stage of really scaling something which can be uh, powerfully scaled. But you had some assets there, you had chutzpah, you had uh, the idea, and you also had three very, very gilt edged blue-chip customers as well. And that, that couldn't have hurt. At what stage did it strike you that you were actually going to change the face of telephone, telephony and data uh, in the United States and then later around the world? Was there a point at which you suddenly realised, hey, you know, this isn't just going to be a little business, this is going to be massive?
1: I think probably um, I got a call from the commissioner of the, uh, the FCC to testify before Congress on number portability. Because um, you remember when I first started, um, the phone company owned your phone number. So you, 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 could, you could get someone... I could say to you, hey, Richard, I have a better service for you, and it's going to be cheaper and faster and better. And you'd say, great, I want to sign up. But then I had to say to you, uh, by the way, you have to change your phone number. And that was obviously something you weren't really happy about. And, um, you know, me and a lot of other people had to testify before Congress and get the, the government to change, to allow people to own their phone number, which young people just assume that's the way it always was, but it wasn't the way it always was. And uh, someone, a younger version of me, has got to march down to, to Congress and, and to the equivalent in the UK and every other developed country and get now data portability. Like I, got, I helped get number portability. We now need data portability, where every, every person owns their own data. Um, you know Facebook won't, won't be happy hearing this but that's the way it needs to go yeah. I mean the data should not be owned by these big corporations it should be owned by the individuals and you should make a choice as to whether or not you want someone to monetize your data and you should get a piece of the revenue for that so th- this is you know it, 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 um, it never seemed like um, I was changing the face of telecom at the time but afterwards, when you look back at it, and in, in America, which is a, a big country, um, the with thousands and thousands of cable systems, because they were all small at the beginning, they were all little local entrepreneurs, and then eventually they got bought up by big companies. But there was, I think when I was in the business, there was 12,000 cable operators in America, not one, not one had ever lowered their monthly rates. They all went up every year. And when I overbuilt Somerville, Massachusetts, which is a little town right next to Cambridge, right outside of Boston. It was the first town in America where the cable and phone rates went down year over year because there was competition. And that was a very proud moment. Um, You know, it only went down by a couple bucks, but it went down. And it was the first time that ever happened. So that that was a very cool moment for me.
0: So it was partly having the regulators and the Congress actually side with this tiny little David versus the, the old Goliath, and it was partly the realisation that price reduction could increase the size of the market and your market share as well. Is, is that correct? Yeah, the,
1: reg- the regulators, Richard, though, they always come late. You yeah. know, they, they always, I mean, think about this, the Telecom Act of 97. The internet was invented in the 70s, okay? And um, the in 1997, the big telecom Act that was going to revolutionize telecom in America only mentions the word internet twice in two irrelevant sections. So regulators are always late to the game, but but they're not supposed to be cutting edge. they, they, they you know they see a problem and they try to regulate a solution. They're not really good at putting regulation in place to prevent problems. Okay. But but it maybe make that part of the game.
0: Okay, but it was a, it was the fact that you got going, you started to increase market share. You, to in order to decrease price, of course, you have to decrease cost. And and so, was there a stage at which it dawned on you that you could take a very large share of the total market in in different in different regions as well in different countries, or did it was it just a gradual? A gradual realization. You put one foot in front of the other, and then gradually the business became very, very large.
1: I, I guess um, it was. In retrospect, it was very, very quick. In at the time, it seemed like it was just one day in front of the other. You know, I mean, th- you know, when we went, we went, we moved into. Uh, Colombia and Mexico and and other countries out of the United States. We went into Mexico. I think our average customer in the States for voice, video, and data, I think our average customer, we know we were in very urban environments, but I think our average customer was something like $130 a month for all services combined. We went to Mexico, and we had to offer a service for $15 a month because that's all they could afford to pay. My entire... Company, my entire senior management team was like, "Dave, you're out of your mind. There's no way we can offer a service at fifteen dollars a month." And you know, we, we were at fifty percent gross margin in the states. And I said, "Okay, well, let, let's let's pretend we're going to make fifty percent gross margin again. That means we have seven dollars and fifty cents of of cost that we can spend. So let's figure it out." And I remember my my um, uh, uh, my CFO saying look, you can't even afford to send out bills and, and, and collect on bad debt. And I said, OK, well, that's the first thing we'll do. There won't be any bills. We'll have people pay up front in cash. And this was before there was prepaid cards. And and I said that that'll take care of the bad debt and that'll take care of the bills. So that's two problems gone. And then you, and
0: then, you solved the problem of installation by getting the customers, Mexicans, to self-install. The, that's an absolutely the, amazing, amazing story. People must have said you were completely out of your mind, but what gave you the idea to do that with with Mexicans? I mean, I'm sure that Mexicans are well, great people, but yeah.
1: It's self-preservation because we didn't have, there was no way we could make money. Yeah. I mean, there was no way we could make money unless we did that, unless we had them do the self-install, unless we had them pay up front. We couldn't afford any bad debt, so we had to have the cash up front. We couldn't afford in, uh, disconnects. So we had to come up with a method to make sure that that once people signed up, they stayed signing up. I thought there that was some-
0: one of the best stories in the book. The book about your private lottery to encourage people to continue paying their monthly uh, amount and not to disconnect. Can you, you can you tell the story? You actually had this idea of having a lottery, and then every three months you had a, a prize, and tell us what the prize was and and why it worked so well.
1: well I was I was I was in the car. And we were, we were in bumper to bumper traffic and I noticed that, that in in I think we we're in Guadalajara and I noticed that there was all these one story sort of um cinder block houses and they all had rebar, a reinforcing rod, you know, those metal ro- uh, reinforcing rods that contractors use to, to to tie together. You mean on concrete. the
0: roof on the on the top of the building?
1: Yeah, well well yeah, but these buildings are only one story, so okay. they were coming out of the top. Yeah. But just, just it's it's just half inch diameter metal rods. It's called reinforcing rod or rebar. So all this rebar was sticking out the top of the buildings. And I asked the Mexican guys that were in the car with me. I said, "What is all that?" And they said, "Well, they put that there in case they are ever gonna pour a another floor, build another floor of of on top of the house." And, and I said, "But so many people do it. Why?" And they said, "Because every." Mexican man is an optimist and he and he's hopeful that he'll be able to build another another floor in his house when when one of his kids gets married and they're they're optimistic that they'll, they'll get enough money to be able to do that and care for their kids because they're very family oriented and they and they and the then the kids you know live close or in the same house as their parents after they get married and that's sort of how how it works in that in that demographic in that part of the world. And, and they said that everyone is, that's their dream, to be able to afford a house for one of their kids when they get married. And then I said, how much of these, these houses, they're very small, these houses are only about 800 square feet or, or 1,000 square feet. I said, how much do these houses uh, cost to build? And they told me, I can't remember what the number was now, but it was a very, very small number. They're very simple, simple square block houses.
0: I think um, you said it was you know a, it was twelve hundred dollars or some, some ridiculously small it, it amount. Was some,
1: it was some yeah. very, very small yeah. small number like that. And I I said, um, it gave me the idea. I said, Well, couldn't you know, maybe we could afford to build one and auction it and, and I was first thinking to auction it off and then I began to find it, you know, to fine-tune my thinking and I said, Why don't we have a lottery and we'll give a ticket to everybody that pays the bill? And um if they're so optimistic in in in, and they have this dream of having a house why don't we auction one off um and so every month that you pay your bill you get a lottery ticket so if you paid your bill six months in a row you get six 12 months in a row you get 12 18 months in a row you get 18. so once you once you're getting 12 or 18 lottery tickets every month when you pay your bill you're never going to disconnect because then you would have to start all over again so if you paid your bill for 36 months in a row, that month you get handed 36 lottery tickets as you come in and pay your cash. Yeah. So it was, it, no one disconnected. It was unbelievable. No one disconnected. Uh, and then we started out at the beginning, every quarter we auctioned off a house and then eventually every month we auctioned, not auctioned, lotteried off a house. And it was brilliant. And these houses, they weren't furnished. They were just, these square, cinder block, very simple houses. But it, you know, every, Every, every month we gave one away, and it was uh, and we had no disconnect.
0: It was brilliant. Uh, it plays to all sorts of psycho- psychological principles, such as loss aversion. You know, once you've got something, you think, you, well, you're getting your 36 lottery tickets. You don't want to lose them, even though, of course, a lottery ticket may be completely worthless. But as you say, they were optimists, and therefore they actually believed that, that sooner or later they would win the lottery and they could give a house to one of their children or or another relative i think it's a absolutely brilliant idea and it's certainly it's certainly original